Thanks a lot. That, uh, that video Randy convinced us to do under the direction of Steve and the humility of Bob and I. <laughs> so anyway, um, good morning. Welcome to Maple Grove. Oh, that was nice. Good morning, class. Um, welcome to Maple Grove. Today is May 25th, 2014. For those of you who were not here last week um, and are wondering who the heck these two clowns are up in front of you, um, uh, I'll explain. And for those of you who were here last week and still saw the buffer in, or the trailer and came back today, I appreciate that. Um, I, there was a fear that I would get up this morning and come to church and the only people that would be here would be my family. But, you know, I guess that's not happening. Um, a few weeks ago, uh, Bob and I are in a Tuesday morning Bible study with Steve, and uh, he mentioned that he, was, he had a question for Bob and I. And then a few minutes later, he said that he was going to be going to the Indy 500. So I got excited. I'm like, we're going to the Indy 500. <laughs> um, and as a car guy, you know, I'm like, it's awesome. It's a bucket list of race car fan, you know, racing fans. However, uh, instead of an invitation to attend the Indianapolis 500, um, we got an invitation to deliver the message to you all today. So in spite of my disappointment of not being able to attend the 98th running of the greatest spectacle in racing... I am honored to be in front of you today. I know how much effort it can take to get here sometimes. I have a couple of kids myself, and Sunday mornings can be like herding cats. Get dressed, get your clothes on, get the car. And um, most of you can attest that are friends of mine that I'm usually late. So to be up here you know, on time in front of you is kind of remarkable, and I appreciate all of you doing the same. And occasionally this mic hits my it makes a crackling sound, so I apologize for that. <clears throat> so uh, when Steve asked us to deliver the message, he gave us quite a bit of lead time. I mentioned he, he said a couple weeks ago. He didn't just drop this to us on Monday morning and say, hey guys, uh, Sunday you're going to be in front of everybody. But I don't know if you know that Steve does that. Every Monday morning he starts a new message series and he writes it during the week and then he delivers it on Sunday. Um, this, even though we had three weeks to prepare, uh, it was a daunting task. I have an incredible appreciation for what that man does every week and delivers a message up here and the quality that is provided to us, it's incredible. So um, big props to Steve. And he was texting me during the first service. Yeah, exactly. We, uh, we are pretty privileged to have him. Uh, first time visitors, thank you for being here. Uh, I please hope you come back and hear Steve talk. And don't base your opinion on this church on what Bob and I say. <laughs> Again, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Mark Vandenable. I've been attending Maple Grove for over three years now. Um, I'm a dad, a brother, a husband, son, and a friend to many of you here today. I grew up in Florida. After many trips across the U.S., back and forth, we wound up here in Charlottesville in 2009. The other guy that's going to talk to you today is Bob Vitricus. Um, I will never do him justice by giving him an introduction, so I'll let him do that during his time. But what we're going to talk about today is a message series that we started on April 27th in this letter that Peter wrote in a series we call Living Hope, A Sure Anchor in Troubled Times. This letter is from Peter, the walking on water fisherman who had an opportunity to hang out with Jesus as he wore flesh. Peter, who had a ringside seat to everything that Jesus did for three years. He saw with his own eyes Jesus walked on water, turned water into wine, 
open the eyes of the blind, raise people from the dead. Peter saw that. He was there. Peter was a guy who had a knowledge about, a relationship with, and access to Jesus that was unequaled. And this letter was from Peter to God's people, people like you and I. People who found themselves in the midst of very difficult and troubling times. And they were trying to hang on to a hope that was quickly fading under the weight of their current circumstances. You ever been there? I have, this week. This letter was to people who needed to be reminded that because of God's great mercy, because God the Father chose them, because God the Son died for them, and because God the Spirit lives in them, that they have been born again into a new birth and a living hope. In a message a few weeks ago, Steve said that God has already given us the tools that we need. And I was never more reminded of this than when I was preparing for the service. You know, I, I read countless, countless studies, I listened to hours of sermons, read books, did all kinds of stuff, and still I, I felt overwhelmed. Like, this, there's no way I'm gonna be able to do this. But it's not until you prepare for something like this that you realize how much information there is but how God has already prepared you for what you need to say. So today, we're going to continue on, and we're going to look at Peter's letter in chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, in a message we are calling Identity, Who We Are. Finding our identity, finding our way. If you have your um, the fly, uh, the uh, bulletin that you picked up when you walked in, you'll notice that uh, you got like the cheat sheet. You got the teacher's edition of the, the handout which the answers are already filled in for you. Um, apparently, we didn't do it like we were supposed to. We tried, but, you know, clearly we're no Steve. So um, I have a feeling like some of you guys are going to be looking up here more so than looking down and writing stuff, which is a little intimidating. If you have your Bibles, um, if, would you open first to First uh, Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. If you don't have your Bibles, it's up here. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, see I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. If you would, pray with me. Occasionally we pray here with palms open if you feel so inclined to do so today. Uh, I'd ask you to join with me. Father God, we humbly come before you today. Uh, what an honor it is to be here on this Memorial Day weekend as we remember those that gave their lives for us and the one that gave his life ultimately for our salvation. Father, we just ask that uh, you your presence is felt here today, that you say what you want us to say. Don't let us get in the way. And we ask that uh, everything that we do be to glorify your name. Amen. The value of an object is based on the price that someone's willing to pay for it. 
I'll put a picture up here on the screen. Bob and I are car junkies, and so I thought I'd bring something to illustrate a point. There's a, there's a car. What you're looking at here is no ordinary automobile. It's a 1954 Mercedes W196R, and while it may not have navigation or rear seat entertainment or a passenger seat for that matter, it still uh, brought high technology into the racing scene, including fuel injection for the first time in a Formula One automobile. All right, big deal, right? But if you're a car nut, you may not be surprised when I tell you that last summer, this vehicle, this 1954 Mercedes-Benz W196R single-seat race coupe became the most expensive vehicle ever sold at auction, commanding $30 million at the Bonhams Greenwood Festival of Speed in England. The value of an object is based on the price someone's willing to pay for it. It had won the 1954 Formula One World Championship with legendary Argentinian driver Juan Manuel Fangio behind the wheel. It's one of 14 cars ever built, 10 that still remain, six of which owned by Mercedes-Benz, three are in museums. This is the only W196 left in private hands. So what makes a vehicle that most people wouldn't pay $1,500 for if they saw it on Craigslist worth $30 million? Because the price of an object is based on the price, or the value of an object is based on the price someone's willing to pay for it. Jesus did that. He paid a price for you and I that has determined our value and our identity. And by the way, in case you were wondering, this Mercedes is not the most, car, most expensive car ever sold. It's just simply the most expensive car ever sold at auction. The most expensive car ever sold, uh, go, the, that record goes to a 1963 Ferrari GTO racer uh, that sold for $52 million in a private party sale. Just a little F FYI. So uh, you guys have your pre-filled sheets, <laughs> the one who we are coming to, the one who is living. As you come to him, verse 4, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It's important to understand how buildings were constructed in ancient times. Often they didn't use mortar, rather they constructed these buildings out of perfectly formed stones. Uh, these stones were so perfectly cut and chiseled that they fit together exactly and they were immovable. And these stones weren't prepared on site either. These stones were often prepared in a quarry and then transported to the building location. And most of the time, they did not have the benefit of having the adjacent stone at the same time that they constructed that stone. So there was no way to know for sure, but somehow these stones fit together perfectly and were immovable. So we have a stone that was perfectly shaped, perfectly designed in order to carry out its purpose, and that's Jesus. But it doesn't refer to Christ as just a stone in the passage. It refers to Christ as a living stone. And why is that, and what does that mean? It's kind of a paradox to call a stone living, wouldn't you say? In fact, when we think of a stone we think of something that's not living. We, we often use terms like dead as a rock, stone cold dead, a stone is not alive. Quite simply, it means that Christ is risen. He is a living example of how we are to live our lives. He is alive from the dead. He has a living relationship with living people. He gives life, which he has in himself, 
to all who believe. Peter is saying you continue to draw near to him because he is the giver of life. Some men reject him, but God chose him, and he is precious to God. Jesus, if Jesus is, in fact, the one upon the, whom the church is built, then how does he do it? Peter says he does it one living stone at a time. That means you. That means me. We are build, being built up. God is working in you, building you into a spiritual house. We are being built into a spiritual house. A building is not built with a single stone. It takes many stones skillfully together to make a strong building. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 4, For they drank from a spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. So here is a stone, a solid rock, a perfect building stone in which God can build his church. Yet it's not just a stone. It's a living stone, namely Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 6, 9, For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. And by the way, Peter has already talked about a living hope, chapter 1, verse 3, a living word, chapter 1, verse 23, and now he talks about a living stone, the one who will never disappoint you. Verse 6, for in Scripture it says, see I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts him will never be put to shame. Anyone in here ever been disappointed? It's a ridiculous question, of course. Everyone's been disappointed in the, either the things that we have done or the things that other people have done to us. Disappointment is a part of daily living. I want to show you a video. This was the last second edition, but I want to show you a video. Um, this very, very easily could have ended in disappointment, but uh, I think you'll find out that it ends quite unbelievable. Recalling the events of that day, Heather Dorden said, it's probably one of my greatest running memories of all time. It's something that is completely unexplainable to me besides through a higher power. I feel like the Lord just filled me up. He gave me the opportunity to show what amazing things can happen through him. Matthew 12, verse 20. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Max Lucado in his book, He Still Moves Stones, which I thought was appropriately titled for this sermon, thank you, Max, says, is there anything more frail than a bruised reed? Look at the bruised reed at the water's edge. Once a slender and tall stalk of river grass is now bowed and bent. Are you a bruised reed? Was it so long ago that you stood tall, so proud? You were upright and sturdy, nourished by the waters and rooted in a riverbed of confidence. But then something happened. Harsh words, friend's anger, spouse's betrayal, your own failure, religious rigidity, and you were wounded, bent over slightly. And the smoldering wick on a candle, is there anything closer to death than a smoldering wick? Once aflame, but now flickering and failing, still warm from yesterday's passion, but no fire. Not yet cold, but far from hot. Was it so long ago that you blazed with faith? Remember how you illuminated the path? And then came the wind, the cold wind, the harsh wind. They told you ideas were foolish, they told you ideas were lofty, and they scolded you for challenging the time tested. The constant wind wore down on you, you stood strong for a while, and maybe even a lifetime. But the endless wind whipped your flame, leaving you a pinch away from darkness. The bruised reed and the smoldering wick, society knows what to do with you. The world has a place for the beaten. The world will break you off, and the world will snuff you out. But the artists of the scripture proclaim that God won't. 
Painted on canvas after canvas is a tender touch of a creator who has a special place for the bruised and weary of the world. God, a God who is a friend of the wounded heart, a God who is a keeper of your dreams, a God who will never disappoint you. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne with the grace of confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The one who men reject. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him. Last summer, I had some landscaping done at the house. And I had some guys come in and level the land, take out a bunch of trees. And in the process of doing this, they uncovered a large number of rocks. We have pretty rocky soil at the house. And um, I asked them, I said, well, why don't you guys just leave the rocks, and I'm going to build a fire pit out of these things. So I had great plans for this fire pit. This is going to be awesome. I envisioned all of us sitting around, had good times, eating s'mores. This is going to be fantastic. Well, I started building this fire pit, and I selected this one particular stone. I don't know if it's, yeah, it's, I think it's the one all the way to the left there um, as my starting point. And I didn't select it because it was perfectly chiseled or perfectly formed. I selected it because it was the heaviest stone, and I couldn't move it. But it was an <laughs> easy solution to a difficult problem, so I figured I'll just build around this one. And so uh, as I was building the pit, this stone was somewhat of an issue because the other stones didn't fit perfectly on it. They would fall off and they would move and I'd just take them and throw them out in the yard and I'd get frustrated. And then the rock I just threw in the yard, I had to go get, bring it back because I'd try it somewhere else. But as I was preparing for this, I thought, how many times in my life that I had done the same to Jesus and his love for me? Just because he didn't fit into my plans or with my friends, I carelessly tossed him away. And the rock that I chose to make my foundation on, it wasn't the right one at all. The cornerstone. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. As a young nation, the United States had no permanent capital, and Congress met in eight different cities, including Baltimore, New York, and Philadelphia before 1791. In 1790, Congress passed the Residence Act, which gave Washington the power to select a permanent home for the federal government. The following year, he chose the District of Columbia out of land provided by Maryland. In September 1793, George Washington laid the Capitol's cornerstone and a lengthy construction process began. In 1800, Congress moved into the building. During the War of 1812, the British invaded, set fire to it. Construction was halted during the, uh, um, oh, well, in 1801, sorry, I should probably stick to my notes. In 1861, construction was temporarily halted while the capital was used by Union troops and hospital barracks. Following the war, expansions continued, rebuilding continued. Today, the capital, which is visited by three to five million people each year, has 540 rooms and covers a land area of nearly four acres. It's not known when the cornerstone of the U.S. Capitol was discovered missing. In fact, its precise and initial location continues to be the subject of much dispute to this day. However, we are extremely lucky as Christians. We don't have to worry about that. We have our cornerstone. We don't have to wonder where it is. Our cornerstone is Jesus. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. 
built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling by which God lives by in the spirit. What significance does a cornerstone have on the construction of a building and why is it important to be set straight? The cornerstone is derived from the first stone set in the construction of a masonry foundation. It's important since all other stones will be set in reference to this stone. The cornerstone provides a foundation, a direction, firmness, and accuracy. All these things can be found in Christ as a cornerstone of our lives. The term cornerstone is found in verse 6, and it says, For in Scripture it says, because it's referencing God's words but not quoting them exactly. It's come from Isaiah 28, 16. So this is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. My time is almost up. Uh, I finished with a story that I heard once. It's about a writer. He started off his seminar by holding up a $20 bill. I don't have a $20 bill to illustrate the point because I have a wife and three kids. But <laughs> he simply said... Who wants a $20 bill? And of course, hands went up all over the room. And he said, I'm going to give this 20 to one of you, but first let me do this. And he crumpled it into a little ball, and he said, all right, now who wants it? And every hand still went up. And they said, well, what if I do this? And he threw it on the ground, and he stomped it into a stain on the carpet, partially tearing it, soiling the 20. And then he picked it up, and he said, now who wants it? And all the hands still went up. And he said to them, You've learned a valuable lesson today. No matter what I did to the money, you still wanted it because it didn't decrease its value. It was still worth $20. And then he said, many times in our lives, we are dropped, crumpled, ground into the dirt by the decisions we make, the sins and circumstances that come our way, and we feel as though we're worthless. But no matter what's happened or what will happen, you will never lose your value in the eyes of God. And that's what we're called to remember. In communion, it's what Peter's reminding us in his letter is that we are all precious to God. Our value will never decrease. We are worth the price he was willing to pay. My time's done. I'm going to turn it over to Bob. Good morning. Good morning. All right. My name is Bob Vitrikas. I'm not Steve Malone. And uh, many of you, because of that fact, will be relieved to know that I don't have anything to throw at you this morning. <laughs> I am the son of an Army career veteran. My dad served in the Army from 1936 to retired in 1958. And uh, my mom worked in the Pentagon throughout World War II, and that's where he met my dad. So those are, those are my roots and where I'm, uh, where I'm coming from. A year ago, almost to this day, there was a national day of prayer at work. I work at the National Ground Intelligence Center just up the road. And my good friend Dan McLish sent me an email. And he said, hey, Bob, why don't you come down to the national day of prayer? There's going to be a free lunch. I got my attention. Uh, and uh, we'll have some fun together. So I thought, what a great idea. So I went down. And that's where I met Steve Malone. I heard his message. I went home that night, and I told my wife, Chris, I said, we're going to church this weekend. We hadn't been for over a year. We're going to Maple Grove Christian Church. And we walked through those doors, 
we felt the spirit, the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of the congregation that moves through this place, and it was a wonderful feeling. Um, and we haven't stopped coming back since. We're so uh, delighted to be a member of this church. And when I stop and think that a year ago, I didn't even know where my Bible was in my house, this is uh, an honor, and I stand before you humbly today to deliver my part of the message. Will you please join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, creator of the universe, who breathes life into man, and from him created woman. In your infinite wisdom, you gave men and women free will to choose between right and wrong. Father, we ask that your wisdom and guidance be with us today as we learn from your God-breathed word and by the power of the Holy Spirit be empowered to proclaim your amazing message to our community and the world. Amen. I'll be talking to you today about who we are and where we're going. I'll pick up where Mark left off with verse 8. And he is the stone that makes people stumble, the rock that makes them fall. As Mark said, we're destined to stumble, that is, to, to sin. Now, use of the present tense in verse 8, Peter is saying, that this group that he's writing to in northern Turkey, Christians and Jews, are still stumbling and falling over Christ. His words echo those of Isaiah in the Old Testament, where we read, And many among them shall stumble, or stagger, and fall, like that woman in that race, flat on their face, and be broken, and be snared, trapped by the devil. The New Testament in Luke expands on this thought. Whosoever shall fall upon that stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, judgment or condemnation from above coming down, it will grind him to powder. And think of that as the process of grinding wheat and winnowing the wheat from the chaff. The reference in Luke is to the Jews who tripped and fell over Christ, who did not meet their preconceived notions of the Messiah. He didn't live up to their expectations. A king who did not lead God's chosen people against the Romans to reclaim the promised land. A king who was crucified on a cross between two thieves. They despised and rejected him, and in the process made a shipwreck of their salvation. Christ is either our pathway to salvation, if we believe in him as the Son of God, or if we reject his teachings and disobey him, the consequence of our actions will send us down the road to eternal damnation. Salvation or death, the choice is ours. Finding our way. I'm going to get a little technical on you here, so just bear with me. But uh, it's common in aircraft and submarines. Steve, if you're listening, this is for you. Uh, have a system called an inertial navigation system. And it starts with knowing where your position is at the beginning of your journey. That's a really key part of in, uh, information. As you move 
on your path. The INS tracks you based on the azimuth that you're traveling and your speed to locate you. Now, the further you go on your journey, the further you get away from your chosen path. So you have to get an update along the way or eventually you're gonna stray way off course. A few years ago, an Indonesian passenger plane experienced a failure in its inertial navigation system. It involved a lot of flight over water, and so the crew was concerned. They got their heads down in a cockpit. They tried to figure out what was wrong with the system, and in the process, they made a fatal error. They turned off the autopilot. As a result, they lost control of the plane. The plane crashed into the ocean, and all were lost. Ironically, the name of that Indonesian airline was Adam Air. The lesson for us is that we need a good starting point for our faith, our belief in Christ, acceptance of Him as our Savior, repentance for our sin, and being baptized. Chris and I were baptized here in this church on the 22nd of December, a day that brought us such great joy. As we travel down life's road, we've got to realize that that's our starting point, not our destination. The journey's only just begun. We also need updates along the way, and we get these from fellow Christians, our living stones, our church here. And if we don't get these waypoint updates, we risk going off course or stumbling on the rocks in our path. Worse yet, we might get disconnected from our autopilot Jesus Christ and His church and fall to our spiritual death. I'm so glad that, as Mark gave in his illustration, that our faith wick was smoldering, but God would never let it go out. And thank God that we're here today in the midst of your living stones. We are God's chosen people. First Peter, second chapter, verse 9 says, but you're not like that. You are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. Peter uses these descriptive terms to let the scattered and persecuted Christians he was writing to know that they're honored by God, set apart as a race, a royal priesthood, a nation, and a people who are his very special possessions. I have a very special possession and just occurs to me as Mark was talking about that W196 race car that uh, when my dad and I were, my mom were stationed in Germany as occupation force just after World War II, one of my first toys was a little model German Mercedes race car that was the predecessor to the one that Mark showed you. And I still have that toy to this day as a little place of honor in my, uh, in my study. King James Version uh, uses the term generation versus people. And it harkens back to the Old Testament where the Jews, descendants of Abraham, were God's chosen people. But they were chosen by God, not because of their family lineage, but they belonged to a certain race um, and they were born into it. But we are not like that. We're chosen by God. In John, this continues the theme. Jesus answered, verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. 
We are chosen by God because we have heard the word and believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. We were born into the family of God by our baptism, the birth of water and the Spirit. We are also God's royal priests. In Revelations we read, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Now, something I learned when I was preparing for today, that in the Old Testament, priests were a special group. They were called the Levites. And they acted as priests or intermediaries between the people and their God. These priests were a separate line from the royalty or the kings of Israel. As believers in Christ, we don't need an intermediary between us and our God. We have a direct line. Christ is the royal priest, a king and a priest combined into one. We are his body of living stones and are his royal priests serving him and carrying out his will here on earth. We are a holy nation. In Galatians, we read it, it doesn't matter whether we have been circumcised or not. What counts is whether we have been transformed into a new creation. May God's peace and mercy be upon all who live by this principle. They are the new people of God. A holy nation means that we're a united people, Jews and Gentiles, united in our acceptance of Christ as our Savior and leader. Peter uses this term, a united nation, referring to a secular state as descriptive of a spiritual nation, separated from the world, swimming upstream, and dedicated to God. So having discussed who we are, let's talk about what we do because of who we are. We seek the lost, proclaim the goodness of God. Peter verse 9 as a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. We were once in darkness, both morally and spiritually, but by being saved, we now stand in the wonderful light of God Almighty. As a result of our being living stones, we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to show others the goodness of God. Now, each of us is different. We all have our own gifts, we all have our strengths and our weaknesses. But we have been chosen by God, guided by Christ, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. What we do depends on part on who we are. God wants us to be lively, no dead stones in Maple Grove Christian Church, no lazy boy Christians. We should all be doers of the Word. We should all strive to develop a progressively stronger relationship with Christ. So, how can we apply this to our lives at Maple Grove? As Christ's royal priest, we can minister to others. P Peter is asking us to proclaim the praises, his praises, Christ's praises, God's praises. How might the living stone want you to fulfill this request? Proclaim the good news by labeling yourself a Christian. A couple of weeks ago, Chris got the little fish symbols and we put it on the back of all our cars. That encourages me to be a, courtesy, a courteous driver because if I do something that I shouldn't do, people are going to see that and they're going to think uh, 
not so good about me and what that symbol represents. So label yourself as a Christian. I, I also like to do that at work in a way to let people know that I am a Christian. And I've found some wonderful uh, relationships and people I didn't realize were Christians around me and gotten into some great conversations as a result of that. And once you put that label on you, then you become a role model. Others will be looking at you to see how you act and the example that you set. Proclaim by your way of speaking. Speak the truth. Proclaim by your way of doing. Do the right thing, even if it's really hard. Proclaim by your way of giving, supporting the work of the body of Christ. And there are so many opportunities at Maple Grove uh, many missions that we're supporting both here in the United States and abroad. And by giving, by sacrificing, by giving something that is valuable to you, not just something that's a cast-off, but something that's truly important. Proclaim the truth. God is great. God is good. God is faithful always. Howard Hendricks, noted theologian, and frequent speaker at uh, men's Christian conferences, uh, Promise Keepers. He passed away uh, about a year ago. But he said that the greatest threat to Christianity is not materialism or atheism. The greatest threat to Christianity is Christians trying to sneak into heaven incognito without ever sharing their faith. Sharing our faith, the Great Commission, is the most significant work on earth impacting the lives of others for Jesus' sake. This tracks with our church's vision, following Christ in life-changing community. Following our vision, our mission statement, and core values should guide us in our daily proclaiming. And our leadership is working on a three-year strategic plan, which I believe will be started to roll out in uh, October. I can't wait for that will enable us to personalize our own proclaiming. What else do we do? We make disciples. One of the greatest joys I think a Christian could experience would be to bring another into the church, into Christ. Uh, this is something that I know we discuss a lot in our life group and uh, we, we struggle with and, and uh, we know that there's a promise of victory down the road uh, and that will bring such joy into our lives when that day occurs. Um, can you imagine the joy that you would feel if you brought someone into the body of Christ to become a living stone and one of God's chosen people? Some interesting statistics. In a recent poll of Americans, three-quarters of Americans identified themselves as Christians. But that's the good news. The not-so-good news is only 5% of those that identified themselves as Christians have brought another to Christ. If we scope back out and we look at the world perspective, about a third of the world are, identify themselves as Christians. And that's a good thing. That's the, the, the highest number of, of, of religious affiliations. 33% Christian, 23% Muslim, 14% Hindu, 12% reflect no religious affiliation, or they label themselves as atheists. 7% Buddhist, 0.35% Sikh, and only 0.22% consider themselves Jews. When you think of how far 
Christianity came from that tiny seed, that one person, Jesus Christ, who said, I will change the world and brought disciples to him to this point of a third of the world's population, over two billion people consider themselves Christians today. Wow. Wow. Now let me give you something to think about. If during our time on earth, every Christian brought just two people to Jesus Christ, just two other people, 100% of the world would be Christian, 100% saved. Ponder that fact for a moment and think about how that might apply to you in your walk with Christ. How can you reach out to those other two people? There are so many opportunities here in our community and through the missions that this church supports. Uh, there, there are ample opportunities for us, and, and we are supporting that reach out to those other two people. We do life together. One of the things that my wife Chris and I really enjoy is Wednesday night with our life group. I know probably most of you all are also members of life group. If you're not, I would certainly encourage you to do that. That's a that's a real, uh, we meet on Wednesday night, and I love it because it's kind of a boost midweek uh, between Sundays to, uh, to get our spirits up. First um, Peter 2nd chapter verse 10 says, once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Wow. That really sums it up. At, at one point, we were lost souls, and now we're God's chosen people from nothing to everything. We belong to God his cherished possession. Hallelujah. We are now a multicultural church of Gentiles and Jews, a people of God, termed once reserved only for Jews. Being a part of God's spiritual house made of living stones bonds all of us together in life groups, Maple Grove, and the worldwide Christian movement. What does this mean for us individually and collectively as part of the body of Christ? As living stones. We depend on each other. We lean on each other. We do this in our life group every Wednesday. We strengthen each other. Together, we can do much more than we can as individuals. Together, we can worship and glorify God as we are this morning. Together, we can offer protection within the body of Christ. Together, we can offer personal warmth and support during life storms. We've all experienced that, I'm sure. Together, we can build a base of operations to bring others to Christ. Together, we can let the full power of the Holy Spirit loose. Our doors are open. Come on in. We also depend on God. Peter, verse 10. Once you received no mercy... Now you have received God's mercy. We have received God's mercy. Mercy could also be defined as compassion, sympathy, kindness, or assistance. God offered us his mercy, and by our free will, we accepted by our belief in his son, Jesus Christ. Now we have God's mercy, undeserved and unearned. His mercy delivers us from the death grip of sins. I'm going to close on this Memorial Day by recounting a story to you of, of four chaplains. 
we stop and pause and honor those servicemen and women who made the ultimate sacrifice. They gave up all of their tomorrows so that we could enjoy ours. This story took place during World War II in the frigid waters of the North Atlantic. It's a story of mercy, compassion, sympathy, kindness, and assistance. As I recount this story, I ask that you reflect on the banners behind me that describe Maple Grove's vision, mission, and core values, who we are, and who we are becoming. I believe you'll find all of them illustrated in this dramatic story. U.S. Army troop ship Dorchester was transiting from New York to Greenland in early February of 1943. As you can imagine, February in the North Atlantic, it was really cold. The temperature of the air and the water was just above freezing. On board were 900 soldiers and some civilians and four chaplains. I can relate to this story a little bit because my dad traveled across the North Atlantic on the Queen Mary that was converted to a troop ship to prepare for World War II. The transit was a dangerous one, and the Dorset's captain ordered the crew to sleep in their uniforms, keep their clothes on, and wear a life preserver. Many did not obey his command, especially those deep below the decks where the engine heat became quite intense. They would come to regret their decision. They never knew how much they would need that life preserver until it was too late. Like that Mercedes race car in Mark's story, it didn't seem to be worth much at the time, but later it would be priceless. Think of that life preserver as Christ's salvation paid for with his life for you, for me, for us. Just after midnight on 3 February 1943, German U-boat 223 fired three torpedoes at the Dorset. The first two missed. The third one struck well below the waterline and scored a direct hit on the engine and boiler. The ensuing explosion of the torpedo, the engine, and the boiler killed many of the ship's crew and took out the generator, so the entire ship was plunged into darkness. And if you've ever been inside of a ship and the lights go out, it is dark beyond your, you, you can't imagine how dark it is. And at that time, the ship was listing rapidly to one side. It was sinking. There was panic among the crew and the passengers trying to get out. The passageways were jammed with people. They were disoriented and panic-stricken. The next 20 minutes would def forever define those four chaplains that were on that ship. It would identify them spiritually and collectively and serve to inspire millions. In the next two minutes, you will get to know what they were made of inside and see the power of the Holy Spirit move through these four chaplains in miraculous ways. They will shower mercy on the disoriented men on the Dorchester and show them the way to life. The four chaplains quickly took up their charge of their stations, calmed the panicking survivors, and guided them to the lifeboats. Many lifeboats were unable to launch because the ship was listing so badly to one side, so the chaplains had to calm 
and encourage troops to leap off the rail of that ship into the icy waters below. In this painting, you can see one of the chaplains helping the soldier to the left to make that life or death decision. The chaplains were aiding the wounded and handing out life preservers, but there weren't enough to go around. When they ran out of life preservers, the chaplains, they knew what to do. They took off their life preservers and they handed them to the four nearest soldiers that were waiting for a chance to live, knowing that that spelled certain death for them. Like the chaplains, we too can seek the lost, lead them out of the darkness when their lives are taking on water, show compassion, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, bring them to Christ and everlasting life, making disciples of them. As the ship went down, eyewitnesses testified that they heard the chaplains praying and singing hymns. And as they listened, they could hear English, they could hear Latin, and they could hear Hebrew. You see those four chaplains? Two were Protestant, one was Catholic, and one was a Jewish rabbi. Of the 904 men on a Dorchester, 230 survived, many due to the selfless actions and mercy of the four chaplains who laid down their lives so others might live. Millions more have been inspired by their heroism, their faith, and their compassion. Their legacy lives on and inspires many others today, as I hope it has done here today. To summarize, Mark, and my message today, God's message today through us, God has taken us out of our darkness to become living stones in His spiritual temple. He's chosen us to be His royal priests, a holy nation proclaiming God's glory to all mankind. We rejoice in the opportunity to follow Christ's example in life-changing community. Will you please join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, by your boundless grace, you have enabled us to escape from our moral and spiritual darkness to bask in your dazzling light. We embrace your Son, Jesus Christ, as our Savior, who lives in our souls, and we know he will never disappoint us. Lord, by your grace and emboldened by the Holy Spirit, we are becoming living stones for you, put together by the master architect, Jesus Christ, who has chosen us to be his royal priests, to proclaim his excellent and wondrous gift to all mankind, salvation, everlasting life. We rejoice in the opportunity to follow Christ's example in life-changing community. Amen.